Again, thank you so much for being here. This morning we're concluding this study of the superiority of the Lord Jesus. And at the end of the study, and I think I'll have enough time, I have a handout for you. And so for only those, only for those who are in the class, do they get the handout? Y'all who didn't come, yeah, well, whatever, it's your fault. But if you're in Canada and New York or wherever it is that you're not here and you want one of these, we'll let you know what it is. Let us know. We'll mail it to you. For all the New Orleanians who should be here, <laughs> you know, so whatever. No, we'll give it to anyone who wants it. We have been studying in relation to the way God saves. I want to make sure you hear me how I say this. In relation to the way God saves or soteriology, the study of salvation, the study of what God has done to bring us into his kingdom, to make us part, to make us his family, not part of his. We are the family of God. In relation to that, the most significant and fundamental study and understanding is who is this man, Jesus Christ? What are his qualifications for being the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Savior? What are his qualifications? And remember, Stephen Fortenberry yelled it out the other morning. And he has a good, strong voice. So I'm going to want him to yell out the two most fundamental and significant qualifications that make this man who he is so that who he is, he has accomplished what he has set out to accomplish. So, Stephen, tell us again. He is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is both the Son of God and the Son of Man, equally and simultaneously. Make sure we get that. He is equally the Son of God, the eternal Son of God from the Father, coming into the world taking to himself a human body and soul. And he's also equally the son of man, a human being, a real man. And in this one man dwells the two natures, the divine nature and the human nature. Both of them dwell in this one man. This is a mystery. Both are independent, uh, sorry, distinct natures dwelling in the same man, equally unconfused or not being infused in one another. In other words, the Son of God does not become a man, and now the Son of God is a man. He retains himself. He remains the ever Son of God, but he is now manifesting himself as a man. Does that make sense? And then the man does not become God. He is a man who has in him the very nature and presence of the Son of God. So he is now the eternal divine man. Now, having done all that, this morning I just felt the Holy Spirit wanted me to finish the study this way. I want to look at the four major doctrines. Hopefully I've spelled it correctly on your notes. If I haven't, we'll see. The four major doctrines that relate to the work of salvation. 
And I think we've covered these before in various places, but it's important that we understand them. Now, typically, and I understand this, if we are talking about our salvation or we are explaining it to someone or we are hearing a study, very often, and correctly so, the emphasis is about what we have benefited. Well, tell me about your salvation. Well, I've been forgiven. I've been freed. I've been whatever. And all of these things about ourselves. Now, this is not incorrect because this has happened, isn't it? So we know that our salvation is significant because it has impacted us personally. And we have experienced the most monumental change that a human being can experience. But that's secondary. Remember, always Anything and everything about me and us is always what? Secondary. Are we getting that? It's a huge significance. The primary is about God. We were saved because God, because God desired, not needed, desired to share the glory of of his own being, the glory of his character, the glory of who he is as a triune being, the glory of the character of God, especially his love toward us. And we studied, remember, the love of God within the context of the other attributes. So we don't make more of one than the other. But I think we experience the benefit of God's love more than we are experiencing his eternality. I, I think that's a, a given. And so these four doctrines we are going to look at have to do with our salvation from God's perspective. Because you see, our salvation is from God. You may write this down. Our salvation is from God. Our salvation Wait, hold on, everybody. Give me my five. Jonathan, come on, babes. Oh, wow. That's, did everybody know Jonathan Duncan, everybody? His daddy, yeah, well, that's a daddy, too. Our salvation is what? Please, listen, make sure we get this. I have to get going. Our salvation is from God. I like you. Our salvation is about God. Okay, okay, our salvation is for God then, from God, for God, if you prefer it that way. And our salvation is about God. <clears throat> if you always make this the primary, fundamental, foundational understanding of your salvation and what God has done in our lives and in the church, this will help protect us from giving in to the typical issues of something about me and what about this and why isn't God and whatever. This whole work of salvation is about God declaring his essential glory as manifested in this risen, ruling, and returning man, Jesus Christ, as we are in him forever. 
And so the Son now shares as a man the glory of the Father, and we are in the Son. Therefore, we are co-sharers, if you would, or participants in what the glory of God. Second Peter 1, four. he puts it a little different. So let's talk about the four activities, the four doctrines. What are they? Propitiation. You have to be careful you spit on people sometimes when you say that. <laughs> Propitiation. What's the next one? Expiation. I think it was misspelled in the, uh, in whatever. And so it, I think it said expiration. <laughs> Expiation. What's the next one? Redemption. Redemption, rather. And the last one, r- reconciliation. So we're going to go through these quickly. This is a study that each one of these should take about a week or two. But we're going to go through them. First of all. Propitiation, the most fundamental necessity in God in relation to us being his people manifested after the fall is propitiation. Before the fall, at least in a time frame, we're not talking about God's eternal purpose and what he's known forever, but within the context of time, before Genesis 3, 6, and he ate, remember Genesis 3, 6, before Genesis 3, 6, there was no necessity of propitiation. Propitiation is the result in God or the response in God necessitating something in him as a result of sin coming into the world by one man. And the reason this is necessitated in God is that when he created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1, God irrevocably and without any, absolutely any hint of inability, He dedicated himself. He connected himself. He obligated himself to fulfilling his initial purpose. Do we see that? So you see, Tammy, God had to save you. He had to. I know what everybody said, well, God didn't have to. Well, no, within the general context, yes, you're right. On our side, God didn't have to. But on his side, before the foundation of the world, God knew that Tammy Mae would be his daughter. Therefore, he created the heavens and the earth in order to make Tammy his daughter. And then you add everybody else's name to it who's in the church. And as a result of that, when sin came into the world, he obligated himself to saving her. Amen? Can you say amen to that? So when we say God is faithful, we typically think God is faithful to me. He is. But mostly, why is he faithful? Because he is faithful to his original purpose. Carried out and initiated, carried out and fulfilled by his son, in his son. Amen? So God's faithfulness, always remember when you see God's faithfulness, always remember the primary faithfulness of our God is within himself, to himself, about himself. Don't make us the primary. We are the secondary. Do we see that today? And so sin came into the world. 
through one man. Remember that? We see that in Romans 5, I think it's 19. Through one man, sin entered the world. What is the verse? Genesis 3, 6. And he ate. And so sin came into the world. Now, as a result of that, God had, as I said, self-obligated himself. Now, that's not good grammar, but I'm only saying it that way to emphasize something. God self-obligated himself to save us. What God says I'm going to do, he's going to do. And ain't nothing, nobody, no demons, no combinations, no sin, no nothing that is going to be able to overcome God's decree of his will being done. Amen? Let's make sure who this God is. And so he says, I'm creating a people. After my image, where is that? Genesis 1, 26. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And when he said that, because you see in Genesis 1-1, that statement is in Genesis 1-1. It just hasn't been revealed yet. In Genesis 1-1 is the statement, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That statement is in Genesis 1-1. The cross is in Genesis 1-1. The resurrection is in Genesis 1-1. The exaltation of Jesus is where? In Genesis 1-1. The new heavens and the new earth. Aware. In Genesis 1.1. Do we see the Bible a little differently? Everything. Is in Genesis 1.1. And where was Genesis 1.1? In the heart and the purpose of God. So sin came into the world. So what's the problem? God is a just God. We won't go through all the details. He's holy. He's righteous. There is no, nothing in him that is wrong of sin. Sin is that which is contrary to God. Contrary to God. Opposing him. And so he cannot have a universe in which his glory is manifested throughout the entire cosmos. Concentrated in a new heaven and a new earth. At the return of the Lord Jesus. And there be one sin undealt with. Not even what? One sin undealt with. Not even one. So what's the deal? God made a... um, um, Let me... I've forgotten my terminology here. Okay. God's purpose is what? Genesis 126. And then God made a promise. His promise is what? In the day that you eat of it, Genesis 2, 17, in disobedience, remember the fruit? In the day you eat of it, what's going to happen? You're going to die. Now, the death there is not only a physical death, it's a spiritual death. It's the death that is experienced relationally to God. And the consequence of that death is dwelling in or abiding in my, that wrong word, is under the wrath of God forever. It's hell. So God has two issues. He made a promise. You're going to die if you disobey. But he also has a purpose, which is in Genesis 126. 
So both of those have to be overcome and satisfied. Are you with me? He has to keep his purpose in creation. If he doesn't, he's unfaithful to his own word. And he has to keep his promise. That the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Why? Because he is faithful to himself. So what has to be done? The justice of God. That quality of God. That says I must keep my purpose and I must keep my promise. In order to maintain or be maintained in the integrity of who I am. Therefore, I will myself send my son in the likeness of men. Remember that in Philippians 2? And for man. And this son of God, this creator son who has created all things by the will of the father. Comes into the world in the person of the son of man. And he will take to himself. The purpose of God, you're going to be my people. And he will take to himself the promise of God. Remember Ezekiel 18, where there it goes out of the mind, the soul that sinneth shall die. Some of you may remember that verse. And he's going to take that promise to himself. And both those promises, that, that both those those act, the, the purpose and the promise are going to be filled at the cross. And so when Jesus dies, he dies so that the Father's will in creation is maintained. Therefore, the Father, therefore the Father remains faithful to his original purpose. And when he dies, he dies the death that God declared and promised would be to everyone who sins. Correct? Are you with me on this? And as a result of that, Jesus' death, what we call propitiates the wrath of God. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is what? The propitiation of our Sin, and not for ours only, but also for the sin of the whole world. So what does propitiation mean? It means the satisfaction of God's justice. Propitiation is that work in the shedding of the blood of Jesus on our behalf as our representative. He represents us. And as our substitute, when he dies, he dies as the representative of all of his people. And he dies as the substitute of all of his people. Do we see that? And as a result of that, God sees that everyone who is, every one of his people who are in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4, their sin has been dealt with fully, finally, and for. Excuse me, and forever. That's called propitiation. The wrath of God has been assuaged. It's been dealt with. It's been satisfied. The justice of God has been satisfied. So now God can now justly call us his children. Amen. That's propitiation. 
Now, you notice, did you notice that I said in Christ that all of his people who were in him, where do I get that from? Galatians 2.20. Everybody knows what Galatians 2.20 did. If you don't know it, write it down and know it. For I have been crucified with Christ. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave his life for me. When Jesus went to the cross, when he assumed our sin, where were we? We were in him. God the Father saw that when the Son paid the penalty of sin, all of our sin all of the sin of all of those who were in Christ at the cross, their sin was canceled out. Amen? Yeah. Propitiation. It's been satisfied. Can you say amen again? This is good news. This is shouting words. Sometimes the church needs to do a little shouting, as I said. Jumping, clapping, and celebrating. You can always be free in this class to do that if you feel so prone to do it. First John 4.10, God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin, to be the one who would make satisfaction. It's too big of an issue, but remember the mercy seat and so on. That was the seed of propitiation. Now, as a result of the propitiatory death of Christ, propitiatory means what? The satisfying to God's justice, death of Christ. The death of Christ satisfied the just demands of God that says, in the day that you sin, you shall die. That sentence was passed on Jesus, and the and God's justice in that statement is satisfied so that all in Christ may now be condemned. Oh, sorry, their sin is now seen as paid for, and now God can justly save us, or at least apply the rest of the benefits of the propitiatory death of Jesus. Are you with me this morning? So the next one, expiation, expiation. The expiation is the removal of the guilt or the debt that is owed from the ledger of your life, if you would. And you'll see why I use the ledger of your life in a moment if you already don't already see that. Expiation, because my sins are propitiated in Christ, then God now takes my life and he sees me from conception all the way to death. That's the ledger of my life, if you would. You got it? And in that, he removes the sentence of guilty. Remember justification. And he writes on there what? Paid in full, not guilty. John 19.30. What does it say? It is finished. Expiation. The slate is clean. Now in Leviticus 16, that's the particular chapter that has to do with the the day of atonement, that one day a year when the high priest of Israel entered into the most holy place of the holy of holies with the blood of the sacrifice and onto the altar, 
You remember the golden altar, the, um, um, what's the hell the name of it? The Ark of the Covenant. There it goes. You see, sometimes things happen in my mind. On to that seven times. He throws the blood seven times on the altar, the Ark of the Covenant. And God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over. You remember at the Passover meal, I will pass over. And so the priest goes in there and an animal or the goat is slain. But there are two goats that are given to the high priest on the Day of Atonement, too. One that's going to be slain. Whose blood is going to be thrown, if you would, onto the altar, the Ark of the Covenant, the altar of God, the presence of God. But there's another goat. So when the high priest returns from the most holy place, the second goat, he comes up to the second goat, and he with both hands leans against the goat, and he confesses the sin of the people for that year. It was a yearly thing, so it was only for that year. It wasn't for the next year. And he confesses the sin of the nation upon that goat. So that goat becomes the symbolic animal, the animal that symbolically is driven, is driven into the wilderness, never to return. It dies out there. The picture is that symbolically the guilt of the sin of God's people is removed from his presence for that year until the next atonement. I mean, the day of atonement, and then once again, year after year after year. So it's called the scapegoat. That's the activity of expiation. Expiation. Propitiation has to do with the payment of our sin in relation to God. And expiation has to do with the removal of the guilt from my life. As God sees it and as I am going to be as I will see it by faith. Amen. Are you with me on this? So is there any sin that God sees in my life that is not declared forgiven? Hmm? No. So let me read this. Colossians 2, 13 and 15. Remember what I said? The guilt is removed from the what? Ledger, if you would. The accounting. Remember the ledger, the accounting and all that? It's removed from the ledger of my life. So here's what Colossians says. Here's what the Holy Spirit gives to the Apostle Paul. Holy Spirit is speaking here. Remember, the Holy Spirit speaks through these men. Certainly it's Paul saying this and John. But mostly it's what the Holy Spirit saying through these men. Here's what God says to us. When you, who's that? Us. When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God, and I put justly, made you alive together with Christ. What? Having forgiven us all our transgressions. Where? 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 At the cross. It's called propitiation. See, verse 13 is a propitiatory comment. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way. Expiation. Taking it out of the way. Having what? Nailed it to the cross. Therefore, when God looks at the ledger of my life, 
It's okay to say it that way, okay? When he looks at my life, there is not one guilty of sin, activity, thought, word, or deed. Now, did I say there's no sin in my life? Did you? What did I say? There's no what? Guilty. It has to do with guilt. It has to do with punishment. It has to do with estrangement. Far away. Stay away from me. It has to do with condemnation. That's why Romans 8.1 has been dictated to us by the Holy Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none there. Why? Because Jesus is the propitiatory sacrifice whose death allows God to, if you would, use the guilty eraser and wipe the slate of my life, what? Clean. Do we see that? So that now we stand before God as clean of any guilt, not clean of any activity of sin, because you still sin, don't you? Y'all didn't know Daniel still sin. <laughs> Even Donnie Bourgeois sins. Judy can tell us all about it. Even Gene Davidson sins. No one laughed at that. No, no. <laughs> and I know you're going to find this most hard to believe. Even Peter Davidson sins. I mean, this is how it is. I know that. I know that. I've come across so perfect. <laughs> Make sure we get the difference. He sees no more guilt in me. Mary, no more guilt in you. Harold, no more guilt. John, no more guilt. Sissy, no more guilt. Gail, no more guilt. No more guilt. Amen? Does he see the sin? Oh, yes. But he sees it as not guilty. And he deals with it in a disciplinary Building up, dealing with, correcting unto maturity, activity. Remember Hebrews 11, I'm sorry, Hebrews, uh, come on, 12, 5 through 11. Whom the Lord loveth, he what? He chastised. I'm, I'm just going through some of this quickly. Reconciliation. Therefore, because the slate is clean, we have been reconciled. That's another Understanding or another facet of the result of propitiation. The first facet is expiation. The next facet, if you would, of this diamond of what God has done in Christ is reconciliation. Reconciliation has to do with the removal of the estrangement between God and us because of our sin. We were born as sinners separated from God. We were estranged. Remember in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, your, our iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have 
hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Remember how Romans, how we are described in Romans 3? I'm sorry, that should be Romans 5, isn't it? Isn't it 5, 3 where we were? Have I gone brain dead here? Where is it? We were helpless and... Help me to know, Donnie, I just completely went blank on that one. Listen how we describe. God describes our relationship with him this way. Five, six, isn't it? Did someone say that? Yeah, yeah it's five. It, it, the three is wrong here. So if your notes say three, it's five. Romans five, six. We're helpless, ungodly. Romans eight. I'm sorry, verse eight. We're sinners. And then number 10, we're enemies. So we were estranged from God. Estranged from God. I mean, I've heard people say, and, and to some extent I agree with it, I've always known God. I've always believed in God. I mean, how many of us, and I say us, have literally, as far as we understand, as far as we can remember, how many of us have always believed in God? There's a God, and he's there, and he's helped me, and I've called out to him, and, and whatever. Can you say amen? amen? But you see, that's not the issue. Everybody has always believed in God, even those who say they're atheists. There is no such thing as an atheist. The person who says, I'm an atheist, he is a liar and self-deceived. He is not an atheist. He just thinks he is. He is not an atheist. He, every person on this earth believes in God. How do I know that? Where does that say? Where do you get that from? Romans chapter one verse 19 and 20, right? It is evident to them, he says, through the creation. It is evident. Do you see why they're trying to debunk creationism? Because this is the proof that what you see here has been made by someone. It just didn't come into being over a lot of years and happenstance. And that which was not existent became existent. And that which had no life became life. I mean, that is the most preposterous thing you ever heard of in your life. There has always been life. And that life has never been in it, things. It's always been in an eternal being who has made everything to be alive out of his own life as a manifestation of himself. Amen? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Remember that? Now, what was I talking about? Reconciliation. We have been brought back from the household of sin. We were incarcerated in the cell of sin. We were incarcerated in the cell of sin. And Jesus won the or earned the authority to undo the lock. And the lock was undone at the cross and applied by the Holy Spirit in my life and in your life. So that the cell door that kept us from God and God from us opened wide so that we could come out of being enemies and come into his presence as friends. Here's what Ephesians 2.13 says. Now in Christ. What? 
What was that first word I read? Now. Underline now. 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 These are big words. Now. You see, when I die, I'm not going to heaven. When I die, I come into the fullness of the revelation of the heaven in which I am now participating by the Spirit. Come on. Come on. Don't be silly about this. You're going to heaven when you die. Well, I understand that. No. I am a heavenly man now. Are you? Are you heavenly people now? Yes or no? I can't hear you. Yes, we're heavenly people now. And when we die, we come into the fullness of the revelation and the experience. And then we shall see face to face. That's what's going to happen. I on this earth dwell as a heavenly man and you as a heavenly lady until it is fully realized at the perusal. What is it? Remember, I've used that word before. Perusal meaning what? The return of Christ. So now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought what? Near. When? Now. When? When? Now we have been brought near by the, and it says blood, but I put the propitiatory blood of Christ. As a result, the expiation of our sins. And we have been recon- the reconciliation. Redemption, the last word, has to do with buying back. These, are, these three, expiation, reconciliation, and redemption are three aspects. They're not isolated activities disassociated from propitiation. They are aspects of, or the benefits, if you would, of propitiation. Because of the propitiatory, propitiatory death of Christ, our sins have been expiated. We have been reconciled. We're no longer enemies. And we have been what? Redeemed. Redemption. Do you see what we're talking about here? Redemption has to do with buying back. It is the price paid to free, to free from bondage or slavery. At the cross, Jesus paid the full price to free us from the cell of sin for us to become the children of God. Listen to Ephesians 1, uh, Ephesians 1, 7. In Christ, do you keep seeing it? In, in, in. This is a positional thing. In Christ, we have redemption. What? We've been bought. We've been set free. Sin no longer has, what, authority over me. It has the power of temptation, but I don't have to obey it because its authority and Satan's authority on me, over me has been broken at the cross. The only thing now I deal with is my own decision to say no to temptation. Can you with me on that? No more authority of sin and Satan over my life. It has power. Oh, Temptation is powerful. But Satan cannot ever make me sin. You got that, Lester? Do you have that? Satan cannot ever make me sin. You got to get this in your heart. And when you begin to be tempted... You turn around and you yell at that sucker. You cannot make me sin and I will not obey you. Amen. 
Rather than, oh, God, God has done everything. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom. Freedom what? From sin's authority. Not freedom to do what I want to do and I make my own decision and I'm free of every... All of that. It's freedom from the authority of sin and Satan so that we can now be free to walk with Jesus in relational contacts. Amen? That's the freedom. It's the freedom that God now has in us and we have in Christ for his glory to be manifested. There are other verses here. No wonder the author of Hebrews calls this, what greater salvation, what greater salvation. As we end, Eddie, why don't you and Ronnie come up here and give these out? Is it, okay? Is it okay if we go a minute or two over? If you have to go, go, but you don't, give the, you don't have the handout. <laughs> Ain't nobody leaving. I didn't give it to you before because I know what would have been happening. I would have been talking and all of you have been like, <laughs> and what did he just say? Huh, huh, huh? You know, so I've learned over the years, don't give out the goodies until the meal is finished. <laughs> don't give out the dessert until the meal is finished right, right porter yes. i can tell you eat dessert first I, I can you can just that type of person i can tell it in your eyes <laughs> let me read this as we're get, being given out look who is this only begotten unique son of john three sixteen? who is he in genesis he's the seed of the woman in exodus he's the passover lamb in leviticus he's our high priest in Numbers, he's the pillar of the cloud by day and the pillar of cloud by night. In Deuteronomy, he's a prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he's a captain of our salvation, judges the deliverer of his people, Ruth, our kinsman, redeemer. First and second Samuel, he's our trusted prophet. In first and Kings and Chronicles, he's our reigning king. In Ezra, he's the faithful scribe. Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of the broken down walls of our lives. In Esther, he's our Mordecai. Psalms, the good shepherd. Job, the day spring from on high. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he's our wisdom. Song of Solomon, he's the lover of the bride. And Isaiah, he's the wonderful counselor of the prince of peace. Jeremiah, he is the righteous branch. Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. Ezekiel, he's the wonderful four-faced man. Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fiery finish. And Hosea, the faithful husband. Joel, he's a baptizer in the Holy Spirit and with fire. Amos, He's our burden bearer. Obadiah, he's a mighty one to save. Jonah, he's our great foreign missionary. And Micah, he's the messenger with beautiful feet. And Nahum, he's the avenger of God's elect. And Habakkuk, he's the evangelist. And Zephaniah, he's the savior. And Haggai, he's the restorer of God's heritage. Zachari Zephaniah, I should have said. Zechariah, he's a fountain open to the house of David. And Malachi, he's the purifier of the sons of Levi. The messenger of the covenant, the son of righteousness, really rising with healing in his wings and you can read the rest of it from the old new testament who is this one this is who he is this is who he is so when the word of god says christ is a fulfillment he's the substance of fulfillment it means this 
in Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 21 and 22. The issue is this. God's glory in his people, in the glory of his Son, being the creator and then the propitiatory sacrifice for our sin so that the Father's eternal will may be able to realize. And in my mind, one of the greatest verses in all the Bible is Revelation chapter 22, verse 4. And they shall see his face. That's what God is after, that we shall see him face to face. Amen. Next Sunday, we start a three-part series. So thank you so much for coming.